From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I'm trying to keep it down because the mighty Aphrodite, I just picked her up from the island airport, the Billy Bishop Island Airport, just flew in from Montreal. Didn't have time to take her home. Very tired, so she's curled up in the corner of the studio, sleeping. She's so cute. Anyway, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, always delighted to kick off the proceedings this way. We're welcoming a new affiliate tonight, WEZU FM 95.9, Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, which I understand is uh, part of Halifax County in uh, the beautiful, beautiful state of North Carolina. WEZU FM 95.9, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Interesting week, of course. We had the U.S. administration and President Barack Obama taking their case to U.S. representatives, trying to convince them to vote for some sort of a military strike against Syria. It's interesting the Obama administration saying recently that it's just common sense that it would have been the Assad regime responsible for the August 21 chemical strike. And I look at the situation Never mind the the UN report that came out in May that said that it's the insurgents or the rebels, if you will, that have the sarin gas and the chemical agents. They're in possession of these things, and they were responsible for some chemical attacks prior to the August 21, the most recent one, which killed nearly 1,400 people. Horrible, horrible situation over there in Syria. But I say, well, let's look at the makeup of the insurgents. We've got al-Qaeda operating over there. To me, it's common sense that they would be using the chemical agents. And, of course, we had that AP stringer who published a report after interviewing a number of witnesses in the Damascus suburb where the rebels essentially admitted they had the chemical agents and they mishandled them and they didn't know what to do with them. They even identified the people responsible for giving those chemical agents to the rebels. And surprise, surprise, they came from Saudi Arabia. And the path seems to link back to Prince Bandar, otherwise known as Bandar Bush, of course, was the Saudi diplomat, the U.S. ambassador, or sorry, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, very close ties with the Bush family. His fingerprints seem to be over a lot of these false flag operations and terrorist attacks and even 9-11, which leads us, of course, this is the time of, uh, of year that we look back now, 12 years ago, and commemorate the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And tonight, we're going to look at consensus points uh, that have been compiled by a group called the 9-11 Consensus Panel, which is building a body of evidence-based research into the events of September 11, 2001. They've published online 28 consensus points, as I say, that have been validated by a scientific consensus process and that contradict the official claims regarding 9-11. We're about to learn about those consensus points as they offer what they consider to be the best evidence that the 9-11 events unfolded in a way quite different from the official version we've all heard over and over again. Jonathan Cole joins us. He's a professional civil engineer registered in Connecticut, Florida, and New Hampshire. He graduated in 1979, more than 28 years in civil engineering and construction management, including building, bridge, utility, and infrastructure design. Jonathan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? 
I'm great, Richard. Thank you for having me on tonight. We also have with us Dr. Graham McQueen, Associate Professor, retired in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University here in Canada, just down the road in the great city of Hamilton, and a former director of McMaster's Center for Peace Studies. His 9-11 research includes four peer-reviewed articles. He served on the steering committee of the international hearings on the events of September 11, 2001, held in Toronto in September 2011. Dr. Graham McQueen, welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. It's good to be here. Let's uh, just take a few moments, gentlemen. Either of you jump in, if you will, and uh, t- tell us a little bit about the makeup of the 9-11 consensus panel. How did it come together? Who's on the panel? Can I start, John? You sure can. I just want to uh, say a little bit, Richard, about what I think the function of this panel is within the movement. Is that okay? Certainly. So here we have the, this terrible crime that happens in the fall of 2001, and uh, the state, in this case within the United States, has different bodies that should be investigating it, uh, the main one being the FBI that had the main responsibility. What do you do if those official investigative bodies have become corrupted and are covering up the crime instead of investigating it properly. That's how we start that's how we have to start this. Well what you do is civil society, meaning the population as a whole, has to say that's not that's not good enough. This was a terrible crime, it killed a lot of people and it formed the pretext for what is now clearly a series of invasions and wars. So we are going to investigate it. And so you have this big upwelling of creativity, and people, in some cases, who never even did research before begin doing it, and they communicate mainly on the Internet. And this tremendous, really, civil society research project starts up. Try and figure this out. And... This is good, in my opinion. This is really good. It's exciting. It's what should happen. However, uh, you get a mixture of stuff. You get points that are well-supported by evidence. You get points that are not well-supported. And you get disinformation from a whole bunch of state agencies and so on that want to confuse people. And at that point, what you need is institutions or groups that can help sort through the evidence that's been accumulated and the points that that civil society has you know accumulated and say look these are the strongest points these are the ones we're really going to nail down and we're going to present to the public and as i see it that's one of the functions of the consensus panel it doesn't have any kind of official status within the social movement nor should it People don't have to obey it. Or, you know, we don't boss people around. But I see it as a kind of a council of elders where we sit and we we sift through evidence and we come up with a bunch of points. I think it's actually 37, uh, roughly 37 consensus points now, Richard. And anybody can find them. Anybody can have access to them. Just go into your search engine and type in 9-11 consensus panel or some combination. You'll get them. You'll get the points stated pretty clearly, pretty briefly, and with all the supporting evidence. So I think this is a really important function that this group is able to provide. And I just wanted to give that as kind of an intro. 
Uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Cole and uh, Dr. Graham McQueen with us, two members of the 9-11 consensus panel, and uh, now 37 uh, consensus points. Uh, there were 28, and I believe you just unveiled, uh, I guess, an additional nine. Is that correct, uh, Jonathan? We, we unveiled, I believe, an additional five uh, just, uh, just either yesterday uh, or today, I believe it's on the site, that we've been working on over the last two or three months uh, as part of this panel the interesting thing about this panel, uh, by the way, is that we work in the blind. Uh, we know who the members are. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a, uh, about 20 or, uh, 20 or 25 of us on the panel, but we don't discuss any of these amongst each other. Uh, these points are put together and sent to us, and each of us blindly reviews it and adds input to it during, uh, during this whole process. So it's an interesting process that kind of sifts out and shakes things out. And then we all independently vote on these things as far as whether we feel that we strongly agree with the consensus point or we strongly disagree. Uh, so that's, that's kind of another interesting aspect how this whole thing's put together. But, yes, to answer your question, there's been a recent uh, at least five added that we've been working on in the last month or so. And uh, we should point out the website. If people want to go on there and look at the 37 uh, consensus points, the 9-11 Best Evidence Panel, and it's uh, www.consensus911.org. Consensus, and then, of course, the numerals 911 or 911.org. We should also point out uh, the uh, one of the co-founders is Dr. David Ray Griffin. Now, uh, let's, before we get into the the consensus points, and obviously we're not going to have time to cover 37. We'll get to as many as we can. Um, I want you to explain the, I guess, the the methodology uh, behind arriving at these consensus points. It's something called uh, the Delphi uh, method, I understand. Uh, either uh, Graham or Jonathan, if you could explain what the Delphi method is, how these consensus points were arrived in. What's, what's the process? I'll, oh. I'll have a start, although John John actually started us off on that. But, okay, uh, I just actually the music is starting to to, uh, to percolate up. I don't know if you can hear that, yep. so we're going to take a time out. Okay. When we come back, we'll launch into that. We'll talk about how these 37 consensus points uh, were arrived at as we discuss the best evidence with Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen of the Consensus 9-11 panel. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740. Welcome back. The 9-11 Consensus Panel has published online 37 now, 37 consensus points that have been validated by a scientific consensus process and that contradict the official claims regarding 9-11. Two of the members, Jonathan Cole, professional civil engineer, and Dr. Graham McQueen, associate professor retired in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Canada, uh, joined me. And uh, we were discussing the how these consensus points were arrived at, something uh, called the Delphi method used uh, over a six-month period to, to arrive, again, at these consensus points. Uh, so uh, either uh, Graham or Jonathan, can you give us sort of a simplified uh, or a thumbnail of the, of the Delphi method? I'll say a few words, although John's already said a bit. 
Um, yeah, I think the term Delphi originally came from the, Delph- the Delphi or Delphi Oracle in Greece, um, which gave predictions about what would happen in the future. Uh, my understanding is that this method was originally developed in the 40s and 50s as a way of making forecasts or predictions, especially in the area of technology, you know, what would, what would develop next and so on and so forth. Um, but the method was then extended to uh, enable a variety of different groups with different purposes to use it. And we don't use it for forecasting and prediction. We, we use it really to try and get good judgment. Um, so let me just explain. The basic belief is a belief in collective intelligence, that if you have a bunch of people, they're more apt to make a good judgment uh, than one person or two people. And so we have about 24 people on the panel. We also have people from very different occupations and backgrounds. So, for example, as you mentioned, John's an engineer. My background was religious studies and peace studies. That's considered to be a good thing. There's a deliberate diversity in backgrounds. Um, The other thing about this process, is, as John mentioned before, is we don't sit down and talk to each other. We don't email each other. We don't phone each other. We are uh, sent uh, proposals or statements, uh, this and that, A, B, C, whatever, uh, are wrong with the official story of 9-11. And we individually study these points, and we research them, we use our judgment, our skills, and we rate them on a scale of 1 to 6. Is this statement very do we strongly, very strongly agree with it? You know, do we sort of agree with it? And so on. And everybody does that individually. And then the coordinators put it together, compile it, and a point will not be accepted into the consensus process. It won't be posted on the website as accepted until 85% of the people on the panel rate it uh, as either something they strongly agree with or agree with. And that may take several rounds. So the statement comes to us, we say, I don't like this, this part's wrong, this part isn't supported by evidence. Coordinators have to take all those comments into consideration. They have to revise the statement. They have to send it around. So the statement gradually evolves. And it will ultimately either be accepted with many revisions or it will be rejected, which sometimes happens. But one thing you can be sure of, and that is that if it finally gets accepted as one of those points posted on the site, it has been scrutinized, it has been considered, reflected on by 24 people from different backgrounds, and, um, and most of whom are specialists in their field. So that, that's what I'll say for now about the, <coughs> excuse me, the Delphi method. John, what would you like to add? No, I think you've covered it very well, Graham. The, I, if I could jump in and, and uh, play devil's advocate, devil's advocate, advocate here for a moment, sure. uh, and that is that someone might be sitting back and saying, "Well, consensus doesn't necessarily mean that this is, you know, proof, or uh, you know, this is not necessarily science. Uh, it may be part of the scientific process, but cons- you know, science isn't about consensus." How, how do you respond to that? Uh, I have lots to say, but John, why don't you start? Sure. Um, Each consensus point gives 
um, getting a little bit ahead of here, but gives the official account, and then the rebuttal is all pretty much based on science, at least some of the recent ones we've just done. Um, so it is, uh, there is a lot of science in this, and it's things that are kind of undebatable in science, like fundamental laws of physics, uh, melting points of steel, um, uh, acceleration of gravity, those types of things. So even though it's a consensus, each consensus point brings in uh, the scientific method, the science, the evidence, the testimonial evidence. It brings in hard science um, for each individual point. So, like I said, even though it's a consensus, it doesn't mean that it's just uh, just kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling about this. It is real hard science behind each one of these. Okay. My other my other point yeah, would could, be... Could I just say... Certainly. Yes. That, that Go I, ahead, Graham. I, yeah, I completely agree with what John has said. But I also want to acknowledge what I think is true, namely that... Uh, the fact that 24 people agree on something doesn't mean it's true. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and and we're not saying to the world, you can be absolutely sure that everything we say is true. No, I mean, that, that that's not something that can be claimed. What we're saying is that 24 people uh, who are reasonably smart, different backgrounds, studied this carefully, are telling you these are serious points that have been carefully looked at. And if you study them, we think you'll see that they they do have uh, the support of science and, and they do have strong evidence. So that's that's how I'd present it. All right. My other my final point on that, again, playing devil's advocate, would be that someone might say, but you all are members of a 9-11 consensus panel, so you, there is a like-mindedness there. How difficult would it be to find consensus? I don't want to spend too much. I don't want to put too fine, too fine a point on it. I, I do want to get to the consensus points, but just get a, a, a quick comment from each of you on that point. Sure. Do you want to go ahead, John? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's actually kind of surprising. One would think that uh, if if you're aware of uh, if you're quote a 9/11 truther, as a lot of people like to brand people, as that is, you don't agree with the official story, then all of us in this 9/11 truther camp, if you will, agree. But amazingly, uh, you're going to find there's quite a bit of disagreement within the group. Um, there's, a, there's an awful lot of dialogue, for example, on this whole issue of, of the Pentagon strike, where there's, there's significant disagreement about uh, whether the plane hit the Pentagon or something else may have hit the Pentagon. And there's a lot of, uh, like I say, a lot of disagreement. Another disagreement may be as far as how the Twin Towers came down. Um, there's some disagreement there as far as, you know, was it directed energy weapons that brought it down? Was it uh, some sort of mini nuclear devices that brought it down? Or was it some sort of thermitic devices or was thermite or nanothermite involved in, in taking these things down? So the consensus points, actually, there is quite a bit of disagreement, and uh, those things that we do disagree on is not one of the points that you're going to see out there. All right, Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, two members of the 9-11 Consensus Panel here on The Conspiracy Show. Now, we should point... Richard, yes. Richard, I know I keep interrupting you, but can I add something to that? Yes. Um, I agree, again, with what John said, but I just want to make one thing clear. Um, we're not telling people, you know, we're all big shots and we're experts, and if we agree on something, it must be right, so, so please trust us and just accept that what we say is right. Absolutely not saying that at all. What we're saying is... We've spent a lot of work coming up with some points that we hope you'll look at. Now, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You want to, we want people to look at the points, read what we've written, look at the supporting evidence, 
Think about it. Make up your own mind. Don't trust us. So that's that's the point I wanted to make. Excellent point. All right. We should point out also, the these consensus points are sort of grouped together in categories. So we have, A, general consensus points, things like the claim regarding Osama bin Laden's involvement or the claim that there was no insider training, trading rather, in put options before September 11th. We have, uh, B, consensus points about the Twin Towers. C, consensus points about the collapse of World Trade Center 7. D, consensus points about the Pentagon. E, the 9-11 flights, uh, F, the U.S. military exercises on and before 9-11, G, the political and military commands on 9-11, H, the hijackers on 9-11, I, the phone calls on 9-11, and uh, a category called V. These are consensus points relating to the official video exhibits regarding 9-11. So let's, let's be, why not begin with A, and let's talk about uh, the claim regarding Osama Bin Laden. So set this up. How did you uh, sort of uh, 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 approach this? Of course, the official account, we can start with that. Osama Bin Laden was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. This is what you know we hear as a sure. mantra in the mainstream media. Sure. Um, I don't mind starting. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what most people think uh, or are supposed to think, that Osama did it. And uh, the point, if you look it up on the... On the uh, uh, the website, the, the point we make against that is quite brief, to the point, <laughs> and it is that not only was there never a trial of Osama bin Laden to establish his guilt, he was never even charged with the crime. I mean, this is astonishing. The FBI did not indict him. They did not charge him. If you looked up on the FBI website, and they'll say, well, these guys are, you know, uh, been charged with the following crimes. Well, there was old, there was old Osama, and he was charged with a couple of things, but he wasn't charged with 9/11. And uh, this has been acknowledged repeatedly. By the way, there's no there's no dispute about that. And we think it's kind of important that the public should know that um, when uh, a reporter phoned the FBI and it talked to a spokesperson and said, "I don't get it. Why why isn't he listed as charged with this crime?" The guy said, "Well, we don't have any hard evidence." And again, the reporter thought that was stunning. Well, you know, why? Why doesn't the public know about this? So that's that's the kind of question we're raising about Osama. Uh, did you uh, examine? Was there any consideration given to the the uh, the video, which, of course, the Bush administration held up as a smoking gun? There was this shadowy, sort of out of focus, bearded right. man, which is about all we could tell from this video right. that was magically pulled from the rubble in Afghanistan purporting to be Osama bin Laden, where he supposedly is acknowledging or or, or, or uh, taking credit for the 9-11 attacks. Right. By the way, John, uh, leap in here at any time, okay? Yeah, I think the only thing I was going to add, not only was Osama bin Laden not uh, accused of the crime of 9-11, the entire murder of 3,000 people was not even considered a crime by the United States government, which is sort of an interesting side fact in, its, in itself. One would think that the largest destruction on U.S. soil, the largest attack of 3,000 people, would at least be considered a crime, but it never was, and so it never had to be investigated as a crime using standard crime techniques for investigation. Was it considered a declaration of war, and is that then the reason 
Uh, I mean, are, are there different rules? Is that perhaps one could argue why the FBI uh, did, wasn't, you know, gathering evidence to, to uh, indict Osama bin Laden because this was being handled, this was considered a military matter? Uh, it could be, and I, I believe they did call it an act of war, even though there was no central government or central entity, if you will, uh, that we were having a war with. It was a generalized war that we're still having, the, the, the war of terrorism, I suppose. Yeah, the, uh, the statement that it was an act of war was made almost immediately um, uh, on public television by a, re- a whole series of people on the day of 9-11, and then Bush himself said this, I believe it was the day after, and it became kind of the mantra, this was an act of war. And, of course, they wanted it to be an act of war because that way you can respond with war and you can use your military-industrial complex, which is what currently uh, most distinguishes the United States the most powerful one, uh, has the most powerful military in the world, you want to use it. And um, by the way, you know, the, the FBI did originally declare this, the, the various sites crime scenes, but then they proceeded to violate the crime scene and violate every conceivable um, rule of how you protect forensic evidence. They shipped, they, they allowed the steel to be shipped away from the World Trade Center, they allowed people to wander onto the site and contaminate eyewitnesses by telling them what they had and hadn't seen. Um, really, you know, there were other major things that they that they apparently didn't even look for, like explosive residue in the dust. So, I mean, one of the one of the most staggering things about this is how um, how corrupt, really, the investigating agencies have been. We should also point out that on the uh, nine, or the consensus 911.org uh, site, underneath the uh, point G1, a claim regarding Osama bin Laden, you, you have links to a number of articles, including one in the Guardian newspaper dated October 14, 2001. People may not be familiar with this. Uh, the headline here, Bush rejects Taliban offer to hand bin Laden over. Right. Yeah, the Taliban made at least two, maybe it was three, I can't remember, Offers, um, they said, you know, I mean, we'll hand the guy over. Give us, give us some evidence. Give us something. And they offered various scenarios. You know, you could have him tried here. You could have him tried there. Um, and you'll probably remember what Bush's reply was. He said, you know, we, um, we're not negotiating. Um, hand him over. And uh, the Taliban had their own form of stubbornness. They didn't want to just hand him over. And so, of course, the predictable happened. The, what was planned happened. And by the way, I was in the region. I was just across the border from Afghanistan and Pakistan a few months before 9-11. And we, I was told at that time the U.S. would be invading soon. So, I mean, this was planned well in advance. All right. Uh, Dr. Graham McQueen and Jonathan Cole, stay with us. Members of the Consensus 9-11 panel, as we discuss 37 consensus points that contradict the official version of 9-11. Back with more. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. 
You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are commemorating uh, the 12th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And uh, it's, I'm trying to, you know, to pick some consensus points here as we, as we discuss with uh, two of the panel members of the 9-11 consensus panel. 37 consensus points they've released online which contradict the official version. And I'm trying to pick things. Obviously, we need a five-hour show to go through all 37. I'm trying to pick things here that maybe people may not be aware of some of these things. I mean, we've discussed 9-11, obviously, uh, countless times in this program. Uh, however, I, I want to jump down to uh, a consensus point, uh, category E, consensus points about the 9-11 flights. And uh, this has to do with the claim regarding hijacked passenger jets. Uh, Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, uh, two of the panel members, uh, join us. And, of course, the uh, the official count is that the 9-11 Commission report holds that four airplanes, American Airlines Flights 11 and 77 and United Airlines Flight 93 and 175, were hijacked on 9-11. Uh, Let's let's talk about the best evidence uh, here that uh, there was something very suspicious uh, about just the actual, you know, uh, official account that these, in fact, were hijacked passenger jets. Uh, I'm just going to leap in here and, uh, John, uh, you know, do do what you want. Add more, by all means. Uh, let me give you just an example, Richard, of what what we mean here when we mean uh, when we talk about anomalies in the 9-11 flights. One of the examples you'll see on our site is the hijack code. When a plane, when a passenger plane is in the process of being hijacked, the pilot or co-pilot are supposed to punch in a code. It's, I believe, a four-digit code, and it supposedly takes maybe three seconds to punch in. I think it's 7,700 into the transponder, I believe. There you go. I think you've got 70, 7,500. I've got the so website 7, open. 7,500, maybe you're right. Maybe 7,500. Okay. Yes, yeah, 7,500. Well, right. I, I would imagine they would change that from time to time. Who knows? But the point is it's four numbers, okay? And it's close to their hand. It's easy to do. And, of course, it's designed that way. It needs to be distinctive so the people on the ground know what's going on. But you need to be able to do it quickly and easily. And they're trained to do it. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. When you add up all the pilots and co-pilots on four flights, you get eight guys, and none of them punched in the hijack code. Now, you might say, oh, well, they were, they were taken by surprise. And that, that's why on the site we, we especially mention Flight 93, because that's the one where supposedly uh, the passengers said, let's roll, and they, you know, they, over, they burst through the door and overpowered the hijackers and the plane crashed and so on. Well, according to the official story, it took over 30 seconds for them to actually, uh, sorry, it took the hijackers over 30 seconds to burst in and overpower the pilot and the co-pilot. And it's, it's really difficult to picture in that case why neither of these guys punched in 7,500 or whatever the numbers would be, but they didn't. Nobody did. And that is enough to make people scratch their head and go, well, why? You know, is there something wrong with this story? But John, did you want anything? No, I, I think you pretty well covered it. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move along then. We're, we're going to come up. This is a short segment, uh, so we'll be coming up on a break here soon. Yeah. Uh, but I want to I jump down to uh, uh, 
consensus points about U.S. military exercises on and before 9/11, and uh, of course we we, we heard uh, you know people like Doc, uh, Condoleezza Rice saying uh, there was no way we could have anticipated planes slamming into buildings, planes being used as missiles. Uh, we heard this over and over again, and and point uh, me one. Uh, addresses this. Did military exercises show the military was prepared for domestic as well as foreign hijackings? Yeah, John, do you want to start us off? Yeah, on, on, on September 11th, um, there were, interestingly, military training drills that were going on that just about mimicked what almost actually happened uh, in, in, in real life. And uh, a lot of those exercises... Um, for example, uh, a lot of the exercises mimicked uh, planes crashing into towers, uh, which of course is what exactly what happened there. And uh, those exercises, I don't think were ever really elaborated on in in the official in the official story. Moreover, they sent a lot of the planes um, away from the area uh, during the attacks, uh, so that they weren't even around to scramble to. To, uh, to intercept those those hijacked planes, so there's a lot of questions relative to the whole um, the whole military response and to the whole um, whole fact that there were mock exercises going on that mimic the entire event of the day. I'm going to take a break here, but uh, you, you also cite here in uh, the section U.S. Medicine. This is a publication reported that two health clinics housed within the Pentagon trained for a hijacked airplane to hit the Pentagon in May of 2001. Though the Department of Defense had no capability in place to protect the Pentagon from an ersatz guided missile in the form of a hijacked 757 or 757 airliner, uh, Defense Department medical personnel trained for exactly that scenario just a few months before the September 11th attacks. Back with more of my conversation with two members of the 9-11 consensus panel. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Next week on the program, uh, Phil Stanford will be with us. Uh, the book is White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. And, of course, we've heard, you know, for 40 years, the official Woodward and Bernstein uh, version of the uh, the famous uh, Watergate Hotel or apartments and uh, the break-in there that brought down Tricky Dick Nixon. Uh, well, now we're going to hear what has been described as the real Watergate story. And uh, this gleaned from the little black book, of a stripper who ran a call girl operation in Washington, D.C., uh, obviously, you know, who included some a pretty, uh, in terms of her clients, some pretty high rollers and powerful players in Washington, D.C. So that's uh, next week on The Conspiracy Show, White House Call Girl with uh, Phil Stanford. Right now, uh, Dr. Graham McQueen and Jonathan Cole uh, stay with us from the Consensus 9-11 panel. Again, the website, consensus911.org. They've released online 37 consensus points. Uh, and uh, I, I want to talk about uh, what's called Point MC-3, the claim about the time of Dick Cheney's entry into the White House uh, bunker. Of course, Vice President Dick Cheney took ch- took charge of the government's response to the 9-11 attacks 
uh, after he entered something called the PEOC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, or a.k.a. the Bunker. Uh, and the 9-11 Commission report states that the Cheney did not enter the PEOC until almost 10 a.m., almost 20 minutes after the, the violent uh, event at the Pentagon that killed more than 1,000 people. Uh, so, Jonathan uh, Graham, uh, let's hear the best evidence regarding that claim. Well, I'll, I'll start and say one or two things. Um, <clears throat> well, the gist is we have eyewitness evidence, which seems pretty credible, which contradicts that. And it doesn't just contradict the claim of 10 o'clock by a few seconds or even a couple of minutes. It contradicts it by over half an hour, which is a heck of a lot of time when you think about it, especially when we put it in the context of of. What, where this point fits within our uh, um, 9-11 consensus panel. I mean, there's a whole category here showing that six people in positions of authority on 9-11, six important people were not where they said they were or were not doing what they claimed they were doing. And that's, that's pretty big. So here's Cheney. Yeah, 9-11 Commission says, you know, that um, that he was there at 10. Well, Secretary of Transportation, Norman Mineta, said that, you know, he was there at 9.20 a.m. and uh, heard a very important conversation between Cheney and a young man who kept coming back and reporting it, you know, it's this many miles out, it's that many miles out. Who knows what he was talking about, but presumably a plane of some sort. And um, he asked Cheney, uh, do the orders still stand? And Cheney angrily says to him, of course they still have you heard anything to the contrary? Well, I mean, the whole conversation is fascinating, but for our present purposes, the gist is Mineta says Cheney was there long before the official story says he was. And how did the 9-11 Commission report handle Mineta's testimony? Did it bury it? Did it even include it in the, uh, in the report? Uh, John, leap in. My, my yeah. uh, memory is that it didn't have it at all. That's my understanding too, and this is this is sort of one of the one of the classic cases of where there's a disagreement or a complete uh, complete change in times between what we were officially told versus what other testimony is out there. Again, we have the commission report said it happened at 10 o'clock or yeah, 10 a.m. and uh, Norma Mineta says 9:20. This is also similar to some other points that are out there that we just released relative to some phone calls by Todd Beamer where there's some discrepancies, significant discrepancies in those phone calls, as well as some discrepancies, and I'm jumping a little bit here, but there's a lot of discrepancies uh, relative to some seismic waves uh, that were felt at the Palisades versus when the airplanes hit. So this is just one more example of where there's, there's questions out there as far as why are we having discrepancies on such a major event? On such a major event, there really shouldn't be any. It should be pretty well nailed down, and it's not. You, you mentioned Todd Beamer, so let's talk about the famous cell, call, cell phone call, the Let's Roll call from Flight 93, which uh, ended up crashing near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And I, I, whenever I hear that Let's Roll, of course, it harkens back to uh, 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 Barry Levinson's Wag the Dog, you know, where every war needs a, uh, a song. And uh, I believe it was Neil Young who, who ended up uh, uh, penning a song, and, uh, w- whether it included the lyrics "Let's Roll" or that was the actual title, but so much of sort of the 9/11 official narrative has been sort of hangs on 
the these cell phone calls, whether it's Barbara Olson, uh, particularly Barbara Olson, uh, but also Todd Beamer. Let's uh, because I think Barbara Olson is so central to the narrative in terms of you know they were wearing they had red uh, they had red. Uh, uh, bandanas or they, they had box cutters. Uh, all of this information came from the Barbara Olson, uh, a cell phone call. So, so let's talk about, uh, about that. Now, th- this again, if for people trying to follow along at home, this is under category I, consensus points about the phone calls on 9-11. And, uh, Barbara Olson, this is point PC2. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that if we could. Uh, Barbara Olson, of course, the uh, the wife, uh, CNN commentator, and also the wife of U.S. Solicitor General uh, Ted Olson. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple of words about it, Richard, and then John can add it. Yeah, so um, Barbara Olson and her husband, both famous, <clears throat> both um, politically on the right. Um, Barbara Olson, as you <clears throat> pointed out, was supposedly on Flight 77, and uh, supposedly phoned her husband, and her description of what was happening on the plane was, as you say, very important in cementing the uh, in place the image that many of us have of what was happening on those flights. She's the one, as far as I know, she's the only one who mentioned the box cutters. And you know, now of course, 9/11, people think of terrorists with box cutters. So this. This detail was quite important. Um, so, what's the problem? <clears throat> well, the problem is that, first of all, how did she phone her husband? Was it by cell phone or was it by a seatback phone? They have quite different technologies. Her husband, Ted, kind of waffled and went back and forth between one and the other. The problem is that the, the flight was way too high uh, for it to have been a cell phone call. And the FBI indirectly acknowledged that at the Musawi trial uh, by essentially changing the story, not just in Olson's case, but in almost all the cases of claimed cell phone calls and saying, well, no, there weren't, there were only like two cell phone calls because they clearly realized that this part of the story just wasn't holding water. So, um, Barbara Olson didn't phone by cell phone. Um, what did she phone then? By. Well, the air phones, unfortunately, the best evidence we have at this point is that the air phones on those particular uh, planes at that time had been disconnected. Um, so how the heck did she phone? And there are no credible phone records that have been brought forward, either from seatback or cell or anything else, that show that she phoned Ted Olson. So that's a real problem. So again, the air phones that the air phone that she would have likely have, or could have used, uh, and these are the air phones people may remember. These were on the backs of the seats uh, on, on airliners, uh, and this from uh, from uh, former uh, commercial airline pilots confirming. And these are people that flew Boeing 757s and 67s for American Airlines. The air phones were deactivated from these uh, carriers in early or mid-2001. They'd been deactivated for quite some time prior to September 2001. So if she had no, there were no records of a cell phone call being made and there's no air phones on the plane, did in fact Barbara Olson make any calls to Ted Olson, the uh, the Solicitor General? 
That's the that's the big question. And again, that's so it. much of the narrative, the official narrative, rests on these supposed calls, which appear not to have made taken place. That's right, Richard. And while we're at it, um, there there were a lot of there were a number of people who were quite insistent initially that they'd been phoned um, by their loved one or the person that they knew that they'd been phoned on a cell phone. For example, they would say, well, I know it was a cell phone because I looked at it. I looked at my phone and, it had, you know, his number or his name came up. So I know it was a cell phone. And so it's quite astonishing later when the FBI changes all that and says, um, actually, no, it wasn't a cell phone call. <coughs> because by and, that and time, people had pointed out that there's no way it was a cell phone at 30,000 30, feet. Uh, Jonathan, why should we doubt the, uh, the Todd Beamer let's roll cell phone call? Well, the Todd Beamer uh, call, according to the official uh, narrative, was that uh, he called at 9.28, and those were based on some uh, studies from the NTSB, the FAA, and um, the Aircraft Communication and Reporting System. And so they, they, they keep t- telling us that it would be at 9.28 in the morning when this happened. The problem is, later on in 2006 at the Masawi trial, um, there's also testimony that uh, that Todd Beamer called uh, the supervisor Lisa Jefferson at 9:48. Okay, well 9:48 is 20 minutes later than 9:28. So here in the own government, uh, two government investigations, we have a completely different time frame as far as when he called. Uh, so that's one problem uh, with the Todd Beamer thing. That that's a serious question that was never answered. Um, I think the other thing that you point out uh, in, in uh, on the on the website is is that uh, uh, Todd Beamer originally tried to call his wife. He was uh, he was trying to make a credit call wife, uh, call to his wife, but his call got routed to uh, to Verizon customer service operator named Phyllis Johnson, who you named you mentioned. Uh, she then forwarded the call to Jefferson, but he continued to talk to Jefferson rather than have. Her transfer him to his wife because uh, you know she was pregnant at the time, and apparently he said he didn't want to upset her, but he knew he was going to to die, uh, and yet he didn't want to have that last contact with his pregnant wife, which just seems rather odd. I mean, that's not necessarily indicative of anything, I suppose, but it's one of those head scratchers. I would agree that it's a head scratcher, and um, for people who are listening, I just wanted to say also that. When I first got into this 9-11 stuff, which was, I guess, somewhere around 2005, I said to myself, you know, I don't want to waste my time if this is all nonsense. So when I look at the evidence, I'm first of all going to acknowledge that, you know, coincidences happen, okay? We've all experienced this in our life. Uh, So if, if there's a coincidence, I'm going to let it be. I'm going to say, okay, it happened. I'm also going to allow there to be a lot of incompetence, a lot of mistakes happening. So maybe they were supposed to shoot down the plane, but they didn't because they goofed. Well, all right, people goof. And as I went into it, I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to allow them to goof. I'm going to allow coincidences. I'm going to, I'm going to look for stuff that's really hard evidence. And that's where John's expertise especially comes in because the collapses of these buildings are one of the best examples of, you know, I'm sorry, but if you break the laws of physics in your story, I'm going to reject your story. That's what I mean by really tough.
tough evidence. Well, regrettably, we don't have uh, time to discuss the uh, the Twin Towers tonight. We've done that <laughs> on many times on many occasions, but we'll uh, we'll have both of you back on, and we will do just that. In the meantime, uh, Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. Thank you. And again, the website, www.consensus911.org. Check it out. My website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>